Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America. Happy Thursday. Big interview today. You're going to get to hear from the former special FBI agent, the FBI's premier signature expert, and the man who Justin News hired to go out and match Hunter Biden's signature with the receipt that was left when a laptop of Hunter Biden's was left at that Delaware repair shop. Remember that story? We've had John Paul McIsaac, the shop owner on here. We've seen the Bidens and their defenders try to impugn John Paul McIsaac, suggest that maybe he uh, stole the laptop or got it from a Russian disinformation or intelligence operation. Well, as you know, Wayne Barnes, longtime counterintelligence agent of the FBI, esteemed in all circles, he did a month-long analysis of the signatures on the receipt the day the laptop was dropped off at the repair shop and Hunter Biden's other signatures on things like driver's licenses and social security cards. And guess what? As we reported last week, he concluded Hunter Biden signed the receipt the day the laptop was dropped off. What does that mean? Hunter Biden did, in fact, uh, drop off the laptop even though he's tried to dodge the question and say, I don't know how it got there. It could be mine. I could have dropped it off. I don't remember. I could have, it could be Russian disinformation. It could have been stolen, blah, blah, blah. Guess what? There is now a pretty strong empirical piece of evidence. Hunter Biden himself dropped off that laptop. That is an important thing. And today you're going to get to hear the story of Wayne Barnes. Not only the work he did on Hunter Biden, but also the work he did as a Soviet spy hunter as uh, one of the premier signature experts in the FBI because signatures not only are used to say someone signed something, they're often used by the FBI in psychological profiles, criminal profiles, to identify the intent, the thoughts, the ideas, the persona of the person making that signature. And Wayne Barnes has some really interesting ideas about Hunter Biden and how he views himself from the way he signs his name on documents like that receipt, like his driver's license, like his social security card and other things. Wayne Barnes is a tremendous expert, tremendous public servant. Uh, one of the guys that went out and caught Soviet spies all across the country during the Cold War. A great investigator, a great FBI agent, a great American. Coming up right after this message. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I'm really excited about this interview. You all know I grew up in a house full of cops, my dad, my brother, uh, and it was not uncommon to have FBI agents and DE agents and others staying at our house and having dinner, sleeping on the couch. And um, I love the real frontline men and women of law enforcement. And this next guest is one of those true hero law enforcement figures. Uh, Wayne Barnes served for 29 years as an FBI special agent doing mostly counterintelligence stuff, Cold War stuff, finding the Soviet spies in America. As part of that, he developed an extraordinary skill set on signature analysis, determining if someone's signature is theirs, really belongs to that person, and also what that signature might tell us psychologically or politically or, or humanly about a subject of an investigation. And so about a month ago, when I wanted to take a look at the Hunter Biden signature on the famous receipt that went with the laptop at the Delaware shop. I called some of my FBI friends and they said, listen, there's only one guy, only one guy you go to. It's Agent Wayne Barnes. And so today, the man who wrote that incredible report, who has this incredibly storied career serving his government, serving his constituency, is joining us for the first time. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, your work is historic. And before we get into the Hunter Biden stuff, I just want to give Folks, a little sense. I mean, you're an author. You've done important private investigations in the private sector, but your career at the FBI is a sort of things that they make movies out of. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a special agent in the counterintelligence division and really even how you got your start. I love that start about Philadelphia that I, I bet you a lot of people don't know how you got your start in law enforcement. <laughs> uh, I had been in uh, a poor boy inner city in Philadelphia. Uh, my escape was to Penn State, uh, and uh, from there I went to Villanova Law School. I was a dorm counselor in the undergrad, and it was about time to uh, graduate in the third year, and a fellow I had sang beside in the Penn State Men's Glee Club was in the Army, and he needed upgraded clearance, and a man knocked on my door was a military intelligence fellow wanting to do a background for my friend Bill. And uh, when the interview was finished about an hour later, he said, that's the first time I ever felt that I was the one being interviewed during interview. He said, would you consider a career in military intelligence? And wow. I had no idea. At which point he said, oh, that's right. You're, you're a lawyer. You should go into the FBI. Uh, <laughs> and that was, I hadn't thought of it at all till then. But then a person from the applicant recruiter from the Philadelphia office came out and it was a made for marriage. So I entered through the Philadelphia office. Uh, I went to training in Washington before the FBI Academy at Quantico was even built. I was a new agent. The Hoover Building at, in Washington at Pennsylvania had, was still under construction. Wow. 300, 300 foot hole in the ground. Yeah. And I was also an agent when Hoover, Mr. Hoover was still alive. So those are sort of demarcations of whether you're old bureau or, or newer <laughs> bureau. Um, but anyway, during training, they give you a language aptitude test, which determines your ability to, to, to learn languages. And I'd had Spanish in high school and French in college. So I had two Romance languages kind of floating in my head. So I scored well on the test. I was a new agent in Los Angeles for a year. Uh, I had a lot of interesting cases, but I was raised in a neighborhood in Philadelphia. I went to Germantown High School, which was 85% black, and I was on all the athletic teams, and I just got along with everybody. So 
So in Los Angeles, we needed uh, someone to become a Black Panther, and all of our Black agents were well-known in the community, so I volunteered. I went into Panther headquarters, said I'm doing a master's thesis on an American ethnic group. What do you think? Picked you, and they said, welcome to the Black Panthers. So as a white, wow. blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, six-foot-one guy, I was <laughs> card-carrying Black Panther for the next nine months. And you were really working for the FBI. That's what's amazing, yeah. Yeah, it was good. But I was transferred to New York next, and I got a call from headquarters saying, have the next highest score in the language test. Would you go to Monterey, California, to the Defense Language Institute to learn Romanian? It was another Romance language. <laughs> and now I speak this language. So it. from there, I went to Washington, and I was there for about 18 years, working the Eastern Bloc countries, all the Romanians, Czechs, Poles, Hungarians, and uh, then was transferred halfway through to work Soviet, KGB, and the uh, political line on Capitol Hill. And I did an awful lot of undercover cases against Hungarians, Czechs, and many, many different Soviets. And uh, that was uh, as interesting a life as you could have possibly have. I, I got to the point in my undercover career where I, could, I had to stop using the first name Wayne because uh, I, there were too many Waynes in contact with Russians. So I became John <laughs> and then somebody else. Uh, but anyway, that? So that was, that was a, a long career in Washington. But along the way, it gets to the point of your, your issues with uh, signatures. Uh, in about 1977, the Bureau started an application section, which have three field agents, 10 to 15 years of experience, interview an applicant for the special agent position who had made it far enough in through the application process that there was right about to the very end. And you want to have three street agents, you know, interview the man or the woman at the time. And uh, the one thing you should know is you try not to trick three FBI agents who have had a lot of years of experience. That's right. Just be straight up with who and what you are. You're going to get caught uh, if you don't, if you don't. Yeah. Right. But that's where the signature thing really began because uh, you always sign your application at the very end. And uh, there were things about the signatures that were just interesting and stood out. Anyway, but that gets you up to the signature part. So uh, that's where it began. Really remarkable. And I got to tell you, uh, folks, when I first uh, reached out to Wayne, um, he sent me some homework. And I loved it. It was one of the first times I've gotten homework in a long time. The <laughs> thought, uh, I read some of these incredible articles. He's written an amazing book. He, uh, but he's done a lot of thoughtful articles about what signatures can say about a person and their psyche as well as their relevance to everything from, you know, you think about this, if you're doing a bank fraud case or a Soviet spy, signature analysis can be such an important tool. And when I read up, I realized the the, the decades of thought that Wayne brought to this. Um, and you, all of you have read his report. I know you have, because so millions of people have read that story. Now, it is a remarkable document because it goes so much beyond just making the important conclusion. Yes, that was Hunter Biden who wrote that signature on that receipt. It gave us some insights into that. We're going to delve into that. First off, I want to get to the news now. And so, uh, Wayne, you did this report for us. Is there any doubt in your mind that Hunter Biden is the man who signed the receipt at that Mac repair shop in Delaware? I don't have any doubt about it. And when I wrote the article, when I wrote the essay, actually, because almost no one understands or knows anything about signatures, often I'm used regarding the issue of forgery, whether the right. signature on a will or a deed is forged. But for me, I have a, a lot of work that I deal for uh, wealthy individuals who are buying large companies, and they uh, know all the numbers of the company for regarding stocks and SEC and whatever. But the executives, the chairman, the CEO, the CFO, COO that are coming with the company, they want deep dive backgrounds conducted on these right. individuals. And I do that, but they always want the signature analysis because it tells them more than sometimes all the other paperwork combined. 
So it is, it's the analysis of what a person is like. So now getting back to, to answer your question, I always have to do the analysis of what the person's personality is, whether they're managers or quick starters or whether they, how they feel about themselves, their family, all the aspects of their life that come out in signatures. And once you have that, a handle on that, then you go to the signature, which is the question signature. All the others were known, and you want to get as many of those as you can over certain periods of time to see how they progressively will change ever so slowly and sometimes right. quickly. So once you have the personality analysis, and that's why I wrote the first part of the report, so the reader would begin to understand there is something to this thing with personalities and how it jumps out at you and what kind of aspects you have in your signature. Idiosyncrasies and the characteristics, all those things in a person's life which are reflected in your signature. Then you go to the question signature and say, well, does that person who wrote the signature have all of those categories? And are the ways that they're portrayed in the regular signature that you know and the known, is that also in the one which is questioned? So it isn't just, does he do this line of this curly cue? It is the same personality there. And it was all there the same way. Very, very difficult to duplicate if you're just trying to match what a person's signature looks like and write it as, as carefully and as closely as you can. It doesn't have the oomph that your own personal signature has. Isn't that amazing? And uh, all those years of learning, the nuances and intricacies of what you wrote are almost as fascinating as the conclusion itself. And uh, I remember the night I got the report, I was enamored. I read the whole thing. I couldn't wait to start reading. And uh, it's it's like reading um, both a signature and a psychological profile of, of Hunter Biden. I want to get into some of the things that you pointed out, because I think now that we know a lot about Hunter Biden, his drug addiction the loss of his brother and the important role that played in his life, the fact that he then had a romance with his dead brother's wife, and then a lot of drug abuse and other problems, including getting kicked out of the Navy at some point for cocaine positive test. You get a sense that he's had a troubled life, and you can tell what he's proud of and what he's not proud of. And when you analyze the signature, you notice something about, you know, his full name. A lot of people, we know him as Hunter Biden, but his real name is Robert Hunter Biden. That's his full name. He's always gone by Hunter. When you saw the three the R, the H, and the B, you saw something I didn't see until I read it. And they're like, oh my God, it jumps out at you. You're right. Tell us what you saw with the RHB and what it says about the signer. Yeah, this was interesting. Uh, the book which you mentioned, I have an unpublished book, which I guess makes it a manuscript, which I call the, the Signature Whisperer. And that is, it's not signature analysis per se, but it's much more involved. And the answer to this question is, is part of that with what jumps out at you. Usually people don't sign their name with just three initials that they have. Usually it's more than that. And in his circumstance, it was. And people who look at it normally would only see the three capital letters. But on the end of the B, he has a small set of lines, which is a D, and that's the D in Biden. So he leaves out the I and then the E-N, but he keeps the D. So it's R-H-B and then a lower D, which is very curious. And that, that puts him in a category of uh, what we call the managerial sort of signature, where he cares about the big things and the little things, like staff will handle that. I don't need these little letters. I'm more significant than that. I don't have to worry about the small pieces. So it goes back to the main three letters. And it's not as much that it was surprising, but he has very significant connections to his H, and that's the name he uses most. And let me say as an aside, what I call a blind reading is when you don't know the individual at all, maybe have never seen a picture, know nothing about them. And I have done this many times. And you uh, uh, go based on solely what is in the signature. Uh, one of my daughters, Natalia, would call me from some kind of a bar or restaurant years ago and give me a description of the signature that she had just obtained of a fellow she was considering dating. She would describe the signature to me. She would say, tell me about him. 
that's the cool. That's the wow, clue that's pretty cool. There's a father-daughter story I've never heard before. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the clue is the dimensions you can do this based on what's in there. And she she knew aspects that were important to, to discuss. So getting back to this one, his uh, H is um, it's it squeezed in in his in his regular signature on his passport on his driver's licenses and a few other places. It isn't just between the R and the B. It's kind of squeezed in. And it's much smaller, almost like when you squeeze the toothpaste and, you know, right. the vertical and it squeezes out the top. It's like it's squeezed in. And uh, if you try to forge a signature and just have the H be smaller, it may not be small enough, but it also is too, not close enough to the other letters to be something which he wrote. It's always squeezed in right between the R and the B. And that's something that a, a forger wouldn't necessarily know or even understand, but it's part of his personality. There's a, a aspect to his H, which is unique to him. And I call it the, the butterfly effect. And when he crosses the H, he leaves the pen on the paper. So it forms like the wings of a butterfly. And uh, when you see uh, at least one of the other aspects, I think, is a forgery in some of the documents that were there. It doesn't have the butterfly. It doesn't have all the butterfly. And he always has the butterfly. So that, that's significant. And it's not just smaller, but it's above the bottom of the H is, is much higher than the, the, the bottom of the R and the B. So it's like I say, it's kind of squeezed at the top. But then the R and the B are either about the same size or the B is much bigger. And that's really because the B refers to his last name or his family name in this situation, his father. And that's the same way where a woman could be Mary Jones and she gets married to, you know, John Smith. And she becomes Mary Smith. And after the first, uh, you know, few months of marriage, she has now her name, Mary Smith, and Mary's on the line. It's a happy person, but the Smith is like big letters and way above the line, and I'm happy about this person. That's a good start of a marriage. But then 10 years later, if she thinks her husband's cheating on her, the Smith will get smaller letters and be lower, closer to the line, or even under the line. And the question is, why does that happen? That's how she reflects on the last name. So here, the B is not just the family name, Biden, which has been generations of, of interesting individuals but also the man who was the senator and then the vice president, now the president. So the last name for him reflects all of that. So he has an enormous B compared to the H. And um, the other aspect is the R, which I don't know what it stands for. If I were, were interviewing someone and I had the authority to say, you know, when you write your last name, what are you thinking or who does that re who do refer to to you? It's such a strange question that people don't, you know, don't, don't get it when they're even trying to answer it. But I would want to ask that if I'm about the R, because I couldn't figure who the R stands for, what it means in his mind, only to this point that it does not refer to himself, because we know he's he's a second child. He has second child syndrome. The older brother paved all the anything to do in life, right, what, well, foods right. to, what clothes to wear, what schools to go, anything to do. It was all paved. And he was a follower as a second child. Uh, had there been a third child, may have been different. Had he been the first child, his life would have been entirely different. But he has second child syndrome. And that makes. It makes, well, at least in your formative years, up to about 18, uh, it, it makes you have some level of an inferiority complex, only to the extent that you're not a charger. You will sit back and you will watch things happen around you because you're not the first one to make them happen. You, someone's done it before. So that H is going to be smaller. But so that H reflects him. So the question is, what is the R? And I don't know what stands for what it is, what he's thinking. I don't know what kind of buffer zone it is. But the fact is, it isn't a letter that he thinks of when he writes his own name. And it's only a nanosecond in this time passing by. But that's, yeah. that's the way it is. It's so fascinating what you can derive from that. And I want to now take us to the moment in which this signature is made. And I'll, I'll lay out some of the facts because 
Uh, a lot of people probably haven't knew this, but in, uh, he delivers this laptop allegedly, according to the laptop owner, uh, in April of 2019, and then he leaves it behind, and therefore the laptop owner then looks at it and gives it to the FBI. April 2019 is the month that I started writing the Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Burisma story, starting with the fact that Joe Biden bragged in a video that he had helped fire a prosecutor. And when I looked at the record of that Ukrainian prosecutor, he was investigating his son's company, Burisma. At the time, he was fired. And that started a series of stories. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, all followed up on that. So uh, his dad is ramping up his election in April 2019 to run for president. A scandal about the family and its business ties occur. This guy goes to a computer shop drops it off, signs the signature, we now know, thanks to your good work, and then leaves the laptop behind, never to retrieve it. Odd. And then, for the last year, he's played the rope-a-dope, which is, I don't really know if that was my laptop. It could have been mine. It could have been Russian disinformation. It could have been stolen from me. When all along, we know from your signature analysis, he's the guy that signed the receipt. He had to be there. What do you make of that? If you're, you know, if you're looking at this from a criminal or just you know, an investigative perspective, that month where he signs it, then pretends he doesn't remember signing it, and there's a scandal starting to brew around, a political scandal brewing around his family. When you look at that total thing, what, what does a trained investigator like you start to deduct from that? Or what would you want to know? What new information would you want to know? Well, let, let me, uh, this, is, this is not a true-false. This is an essay question, right? right. <laughs> or multiple choice for that matter. Um, I call this a, a blind reading or analysis, and that I intentionally, and many times when I do these, all I have is a signature. Right. Uh, uh, I have a, a section in my book on people who are uh, the Johnny Weissmuller, you know, John Wayne. Right. What was in their personalities? What did they do? You can't ask them. You know, it's only in the signature we learn much, a lot about them, and that was the same way here. I very intentionally, especially since I had gotten your call, very intentionally did not watch any news if I possibly could about the laptop or what was in it. I mean, right. you couldn't avoid seeing the, the photo with uh, a sleep in bed with a crack pipe, those right, kind of right, things. You right. couldn't, couldn't miss that because that right. was sort of every place. But the less I knew about the man, the better it was for me. And if someone else had written some kind of analysis, I would not want to have read that. You want to make this objective and clear and neat on your own. Right. So I, uh, so I, didn't, I didn't want any extra knowledge. So what I call extraneous information uh, which does not mean not relevant, but extraneous are things outside of the signature and put draw a circle around the oval around the signature and everything else out there uh, was not part of the analysis. But then when you want to do a, an investigation, like I mentioned, for the uh, the wealthy investors or buying big companies, right. you always have to have a fact pattern that's within the framework of what you're looking for. And by that, I mean if there was a closed circuit camera that showed him going into the computer store or in the parking lot, there was his car pulling in. So extraneous information would include things like closed circuit TV with wills and deeds. Of sometimes they're witnesses. They can be interviewed. Person's schedule. If he was in Amsterdam on that day, uh, he didn't. maybe he didn't do it. But in fact, if you know he was in the States and in Delaware, the extraneous things which either add to the idea that this was thing he could have done or would have done or might have done, Versus something which would exclude him. That's how, you know, murderers try to pretend they're someplace else so I couldn't have been there right. with an alibi. A fake alibi, so, so right? So those pieces of information are very important. Had it, we been involved, had I been involved from the very beginning, that's the very first thing you do. We send people out and try to find who was there, who saw what. Uh, did his car go through a toll exchange where his license plate was written down, uh, you know, that day in the same general area? All those things are extraneous, but they're very relevant to the point of 
they would be consistent whether he was there or whether he was not there, whichever side it goes on. So that's important. So the signature is never an investigation on its own. It's always with surrounding information. So that's to me important. So that what I took out of it in terms of I wanted to make it my own report with my own analysis and information and nothing else to affect it. So now that I could be more freely looking at other things, the very idea, I've set up a lot of undercover. Uh, I was the undercover coordinator in the Washington field office in counterintelligence, which was an enormous task. Oh, yeah. We had, you know, like 17 people with undercover identity. And when I got finished, we had like 120. And the idea is you have to have false ID in your pocket. You have to have things set up. So setting up backstopping is very complicated. You have a visa card, you have a driver's license, but do you have a library card for the library in Arlington? Is that in your pocket as part of your backstopping to show, hey, I'm a real person? So what it would take to set up by way of extrapolation, the data which is in this laptop, the extraordinary detail and depth and timing dates and consistent with other information. Uh, the one I read this morning about what was uh, someone was being replaced uh, the State Department or someone who's getting an appointment or someone who's being released from custody in Turkey. If that happened at that point in time, to have someone actually write an article and frame it and, and commit an a, a act of uh, deception by putting a false piece of false information out of that like one, two emails in the computer is extraordinary with all the, 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 the copy count of who was receiving these things, their dates or positions, all those sort of things. And then that's one document. And you have hundreds and hundreds of documents. So have someone do all of that by way of backstopping to make it appear as though this was a true laptop when it really wasn't. It's really just beyond the pale. You just, you just couldn't do it. Pretty remarkable. And uh, I think people get a sense of why you are so well-respected, Wayne. The, the, the carefulness, the thoughtfulness, the objectivity that you bring to this is uh, really amazing and very refreshing because today yeah. we see so many so-called experts that don't put one-tenth of the care and time and that you did uh, on this case and so many others before before i let you go because i you know i was i was a big fan of the of the series the americans uh which was a you know the uh, cat and mouse spy game uh russia cold war washington dc 70s and 80s um First, was that a pretty realistic portrayal of how the FBI and the and the Soviets uh, played cat and mouse on spy games? And two, <laughs> you you might saw that, right? Yeah, you may not yeah, have. I That's did. right. I, yeah, I, I, no, I, I did. I have yeah. to see all of those because invariably, someone as yourself will say, "Was that real?" Yep. The principle was was real that there are sleeper cells and right. that are out there. That is that is quite real. I don't know that they all have a, a cabinet which has five different wigs, right. enabling them to look like different people at different time. Uh, they do have. Someone in charge of the cell, that's what uh, Colonel Abel was. Right. He was in New York in the 50s. He was arrested as head of that sleeper cell. They have always had them and probably always will. They do train people well. And the interesting part is uh, we are able to penetrate some of them because someone may have been you know, raised in New York and went to Russia with their parents, and then they came out as sleeper people, but they really want to be Americans. So they're willing to turn over the goods, and it tells us all about their, their circumstance of it's their mentality of what they want to do in life, and it's not be back in Moscow to be in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so we're able to debrief a lot of these people. I was a main in Cold War debriefer for uh, of defectors. So the point is that it's based upon a principle which is accurate, and there's a particular section of the KGB now that's VR, I guess, or the FSB, right. the particular section that does that, and they set up covers for people, and it does go on for years. But there are books which will tell you how they do this so well, and more likely that's fantasy. 
a lot of the civic incidents where they're doing extortion or they're doing something which is, you know, fairly outrageous, that's made for the TV audience and they don't really happen that way. Many of the time it's boring. They just live the life they live. And then when they get some information that could be helpful about some they top secret information in a, in a technical company in New Jersey, you know, that they'll go for it. And that's great for them. And the other thing, uh, it was about the Soviet Union, it probably works the same way. When we have documents which we declassify, a tank, which is now second or third generation for the U.S. Army, the information no longer classified. You can buy them in a, you know, a, a, a army surplus store. But the Russians in the embassy in Washington, the GRU, the Soviet military, they would go to the army surplus stores and buy the manual for the last tank that was declassified, tear off the front page where it says declassified, and send it home like they had a great source in the <laughs> Pentagon. And here's the document. And yeah. they did that. That's pretty so funny. They, they cheat. They cheat within their own system just to get ahead and to stay alive. And uh, their wife would really, you know, hate them if they got sent back to Moscow because she couldn't use the dishwashing That's machine right. and the clothes washers here. All the so there's a lot of personality things that are involved. Yeah, there's no no doubt about it. You grew up in a generation of the FBI that was so good at human. I mean, uh, and sometimes with all our technology today, we forget that human intelligence is so important. There's been a lot of controversy about the FBI over the last few years, whether it's the Russia case, all the different things, uh, the uh, Olympic doctor who maybe the FBI dropped the ball on. When you look at the Bureau today, is it in crisis? Does it need help or is it okay? And it's just had a couple of bumps. How do you assess the great agency that you gave the greater part of your career to? You're getting into a political statement now. Yeah. <laughs> Be very careful. Yeah. Uh, I, let me say this. When they say, when I got in the Bureau, the old Bureau was the ones who arrested Ma Barker and Babyface Nelson. And right. I was in the new Bureau at the time. Now my, my Bureau is now the old Bureau and the, what's happening new. And the seventh floor of the Hoover building is where they have the desks made of wood. Right. Uh, most agents had desks which are made of gray steel and formica. And uh, they were just like the color of the battleships. But the ones on the seventh floor were the director, the assistant directors, the deputy assistant directors, the DADs and whatever. And their desks were made of mahogany. And within the bureau, we just always called that mahogany row. Decisions came <laughs> row. I didn't know that. That's and, funny. I've heard of the seventh and, floor for sure. Wow, that's funny. Yeah. You wouldn't say the seventh floor. Anyway, so uh, in the last, I hate to say dozen years, I'm not sure how long. But it, it, it may not have been efficient on a managerial basis if you raise someone who's uh, you know, born in Iowa and they become an agent, they become a supervisor, they're in New York, they're Washington, they're in Detroit, they go to headquarters, they go up as managers and they get to be section chief, unit chief and section chief, and maybe an assistant, a deputy assistant director. But do they still have the brain from Iowa or do they not go through an Ivy League school to become, uh, have an MBA? Are they just raised up higher, but they're not better than they might be? And could someone else be brought in from the outside? And the problem is when you bring in someone on the outside, while they may be very good managers, and may have training how to do certain things. They didn't go through Quantico. They didn't run the yellow brick road, which was the road through the woods, which was right. rocks that painted yellow just so you wouldn't trip on them. Run the yellow brick road, all the firearms training, all the defensive tactics, all the things you have to know as an investigator. They don't know what it's like to, quote, be an agent. They're at a senior position, but they don't have that background. So while it's good in many ways that they may be better managers, it also means that they don't know what it's like to have carried the badge, to have arrested somebody, to have been in a tussle, to have been in a shootout. They don't know that. And that's a different frame of mind. It makes them strictly managers and not knocking strictly managers. because right. You have to different skill you know, set, though. Take it. It, works, it works both ways. But when I was in the bureau, I didn't know one conversation, one person who would say that person is a Republican or that person is a Democrat. It never came up. It was just law enforcement, law and order, you know, arrest the doctor who's cheating, arrest the spy, arrest the, you know, the, the, the fugitive, 
Uh, haven't found a fugitive for six years, so you go to his mother's house at 6.30 in the morning, and you wait and wait and wait, and Jethro shows up at 10 o'clock in the morning to wish his mother happy birthday, and you let him go inside and have a couple hours with her. He comes outside, you arrest him, and uh, and his mother is angry. You say, listen, I gave you two hours with your son on your birthday. You should be happy. And they say, Jeff, you go with these nice men. That's the old bureau. You learn how to do it. You figure how to train the new agents and make things work well. No politics whatsoever. If you bring in people from the outside, whether it's from DOJ or any place else, politics become a part of it as opposed to no politics. Yeah. So the street agents out there in you know, San Diego and Bangor, Maine and you know, Portland, Oregon, they are agents. They're working hard. They're doing really, really good stuff. But what's taking place at the top, whether it was from you know, Director Comey or anybody else, I haven't got an explanation. Yeah. The explanation you just gave is the one I hear most commonly from the real frontline men and women of the FBI. They go out and they do their job. They don't do it for politics. They do it to protect our country. And we are darn lucky, Wayne, that you were one of those protecting us during the Cold War and well beyond. And um, I want to thank you for your service to your country and also for the important work you did here for Just the News, because uh, that report was such an important document. So many people have commented on it. And um, we're just so grateful for for the great care that you bring to your job every every day. Well, I I pride and humility in what I did, and I, I enjoyed every minute of it, every minute, and I uh, wish I could still be doing it now. But I'm thankful to have uh, been here and to have written what I did. It's all the objective uh, truth, and uh, it was my pleasure. So yeah, thank you very much. We're, we're really grateful. All of our readers and listeners are, too. And now that we know you and all this incredible history, I'm certain we're going to be coming back into you to have uh, have you back on the show. You are you are a true American hero, and we're so grateful for for that service. There are a lot of cold warriors out there. They all deserve a lot of credit, too. They do. They do indeed. And we applaud them all because we, we live safe and free because of their incredible work every day. So thank you, my friend. And we'll, uh, we'll be back to you soon. I'm sure we're going to have some follow-ups and other, other important stories. And now I know a lot more about signature analysis. I'll be coming to you more often. <laughs> all right. Thank you, John. All right. Much. Take care, Wayne. Have a good one. All right, folks, that wraps up a great interview. Wow, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. A couple headlines to keep an eye on. We'll bring, bring you up to speed right after this commercial break. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. It's time to say goodnight, goodbye. We had fun today. We were in the Freedom Phone Studios here in Washington, D.C., the Just the News uh, podcasting studios, which are currently named for the Freedom Phone that our friend Eric Finman is selling around the country. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to have Eric Finman on the podcast. Why? There's been a lot of counter attacks, a lot of shooting at him, a lot of misinformation about the phone. 
And we wanted you to hear directly from him addressing all the hard questions, all of the controversies. He is a, a straight shooter. Gives it to you like it is. If he makes a mistake, he says it. If he's done something right and he's being wrongly accused, he's going to let you know. He's going to break some news on the show, describing some of the stuff that's involved in the phone. That's why we're bringing him on tomorrow to answer your questions so you can rest assured in what is true and not true. What are the facts and what aren't the facts about this phone? And you're going to get that uh, tomorrow on the show. What a great pleasure it was to host Wayne Barnes. You saw the care that he's put into his work, whether you read his report about the Hunter Biden signatures or you heard his story today. A true bona fide American hero, a law enforcement man who gave service to this country for three decades and really has become one of the great experts in signature writing. All right, that wraps it up for the day. We'll be back tomorrow with a new edition. Remember, Eric Finman, Freedom Phone, your questions getting answered by the CEO of this phone company. What a great opportunity to get the truth and sort fact from fiction, wheat from chaff. You know how it goes. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, may God bless you and may God bless this incredible country of the United States of America as he always has from its day of founding. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then.